Hello from ABA Mid-Year Meeting 2018 in Vancouver, Canada. I'm Lawrence Galetti. And I'm Hilary Bass. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. And we're back. Thank you so much for joining us on the road. It's a pleasure to be here. We have changed locations from the convention center. We're now joining president of the American Bar Association, Hillary Bass, in her suite upstairs. Tremendous view of the water out there. So, uh, President Bass, just first question. It's been very busy for you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I love Vancouver. And tonight, the fog is lifted and we can actually see some of the beauty of the city. This is my first time in uh, Vancouver, and uh, you know I, I uh, I've been to other places in Canada, but this is definitely unique. And so, just the topography is amazing. Wonderful backdrop for the American Bar Association mid-year meeting. It is. It's been great so far. So, I wanted to catch up with you. So, our, our first interview together was uh, when you took over uh, as ABA president uh, very early, ABA annual in New York City. And uh, so, I wanted to catch up with you, see how things were going, and I just wanted to touch upon some of the issues that uh, we discussed first. They were going to be pillars for your uh, tenure as the leader of the American Bar Association, and then try to get into some new topics. So let me just kind of start with just listing some of the issues that we talked about. So one, and this is obviously very important to you, uh, women leaving the profession. Uh, Another one, which is important to you, is homeless youth. And then you uh, are doing ABA Fact Check Initiative. And diversity and inclusion, that was another one of the uh, pillars. And then the last one that we got into was Commission on the Future of Legal Education. So which one of those would you like to knock off first? Well, why don't we start at the top Okay. with our initiative on securing long-term careers for women lawyers. Okay. So we talked in August about our plans to do a year-long study about why women were leaving the profession in droves. And we started it off with a conference at Harvard the first week in November in which we had some focus groups, some managing partners present, lots of lawyers, and we really questioned why the successful women lawyers decided to stay in the profession and why a lot of other women lawyers had chosen to leave. So what are some of the early indications? I know that you had some theories originally, and some of that had to do with perhaps the perception of the women. And it was interesting because uh, what you were telling me last time was that there was a big grouping of women leaving the profession in their 40s and 50s during peak earning years uh, when you're supposed to be getting the goodies of your profession. Correct. At a point in time when they really have experience and expertise and are of great value to both their firms and their clients. So we're trying to figure out why they're leaving and what law firms and other legal employers could do to make sure they stay. So some of the preliminary views that have been expressed in our conversations are, number one, something called success fatigue, that after many years of always having to work just a little harder and having to prove yourself just a little more than the men men attorneys around, that women just find that they're tired, that they're tired of hitting their head against the wall and still finding a glass ceiling. And much of what we heard was that The glass ceiling is still there. It's just moved. So you can get your first job. You can become a partner in a major firm. But when it comes to becoming an equity partner or a managing partner, there's still inherent limitations. And that comes down to the issue of implicit bias, which women talk about a lot, that despite the fact that they may be performing at exactly the same level as their male colleagues, they are under a microscope and that oftentimes they're being evaluated through a prism which is not completely objective. 
And then, of course, recently, the focus has been on sexual harassment in the profession. And there have been a couple of recent studies, one by the Florida Bar and one by the California Bar, both which show pretty distressing figures that women within the last three years, whether it's 40 or 45 or 50 percent of women, report that they have been forced to deal with some form of sexual harassment or bullying in the workplace. So those factors are still very significant and of real concern. So just uh, in terms of uh, this, you're talking a lot about the Me Too movement. Obviously, uh, in the press, we've been hearing a lot, many counts of that. And uh, one of the byproducts of reporting that has been a lot more women have felt comfortable bringing forth these instances and reporting it to their superiors, but also making it known. And um, so I'm just, in terms of that, and I, and I realized the summit was probably a little early for the Me Too movement. Since the summit, are you seeing more of that coming from the, the sexual harassment aspect of it for reasons why women might believe in the profession in the 40s and 50s? You see people talking about it as one of the factors. It's still very rare that a woman will identify a harasser within their workplace because there's still a perception that it's a career-ending discovery, that if to the extent they come and assert a claim against somebody in their workplace, that not only will it be career-ending for them within that environment, but chances are it will affect their ability to find future employment as a lawyer. So that's a big disincentive for women to come forward. Is it too early right now in the uh, the process of the study to start asking for advice? So right now, uh, Legal Talk Network being listened to mostly by attorneys, uh, women attorneys obviously included uh, in those numbers. Right now, Hillary Bass standing here as uh, as the president of the American Bar Association, very successful attorney, co-president at Greenberg Traurig, you know, obviously a very powerful firm. Can you give them some advice for, for women leaving the profession and also for those that feel they might fall into the category of Me Too? Well, what we're hoping to do by the end of this bar year is to come up with some very specific recommendations. Right now in front of the House of Delegates that will meet on Monday, there is a resolution put out by the Commission on Women in the Legal Profession of the ABA that does have some basic principles of harassment policies that we hope will be adopted. And it's focused on legal employers, but it's really applicable to employers across industries. So next on the list of topics very important to you is homeless youth. So back in November, we gathered over 100 NGOs from across the world in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And what we did there was get together with people who really are on the ground in countries throughout the world. Some were from Singapore, from Brazil, from the Congo, from other nations in Africa. And what they did is exchange ideas about how to implement this general comment that was passed by the UN last spring that focuses on street-related youth. And in large part, the comment is intended to recognize the rights of street youth in an effort to help street youth get off the street. And so what we've come up with as a result of that conference is a statement of principles, which we're hoping to bring to the House of Delegates this August, with very specific recommendations, because part of the UN Treaty on the Rights of the Child, part of what's required is for nations that are signatories to the treaty to come to the UN every five years and update them as to what work has been done with street-related youth. These principles that are the outgrowth of the conference will really give guidance very specifically to nations across the globe as to what they need to be doing or not doing to help their street-related youth. 
things like not requiring a birth certificate in order for a street-related youth to get access to school or health care. Very granular, very specific recommendations. And as I say, that we will be bringing to the House this August. Well, since that process has begun, you know, with the homeless youth, and obviously there's an international component, I think that's a little different than my recollection. I I was uh, under the impression it was primarily U.S., but it sounds like it's expanded. Well, it was both. We have the international component, and then we have the domestic component. The domestic component focuses on getting bar associations, law firms, and legal groups to go into homeless shelters that specialize with legal youth and commit to one day a month coming and giving free pro bono legal advice. Many of these kids have very similar problems. Maybe it's figuring out how to get a driver's license because they don't have a birth certificate, or they're a runaway from foster care and they want to get back into school, or they're a victim of sexual exploitation and they're dealing with the consequences of that, or perhaps it's somebody who just wants to get rid of the criminal infractions on their record. So we have found that extending a helping hand to one of these children even if it's just by providing a couple of hours of free legal advice, can really change the trajectory of their lives. And so we're getting a lot of response from lawyers who very much want to do something on the pro bono side. And this is a relatively easy ask because it's a limited commitment. I understand this is a very important uh, issue to you. So since going down this path, since uh, you know enacting these studies and following up the information, what are some of the most shocking revelations you've learned about homeless youth uh, in this country and worldwide? Well, I think on a domestic side, you don't realize how many of your kids' friends in high school are, in fact, couch surfing from friend to friend. You don't see them on the street, and you think they're just fine, but what you find out is they're not going home to a stable home environment every night, and maybe they're pitching back and forth between a cousin or a friend or whatever. But there's a large percentage of uh, children in, in our communities that are dealing with this homelessness issue. Most of the time, we're not even aware of it. I just a uh, follow-up question on that. I read, and this was a while ago, we were uh, kind of researching some issues uh, for uh, homeless legal needs. And uh, one of the statistics that was pretty shocking was how many homeless men compared to women there are at the adult age. But my guess is those numbers are probably fairly even amongst uh, the minors. Uh, is that a similar observation that you have? Well, what you find is different reasons for children, typically in the age of 17 to 22, being without a stable home environment. And sometimes they're runaways from foster care. And sometimes they're LGBTQ youth who don't have a hospitable home environment. And oftentimes it's young girls or young women who are the victims of sexual exploitation. And they find that the only way they can get away from their exploiter is to end up on the street. Wow. Well, that's a very, very sobering issue, and uh, I look forward to uh, the follow-ups on that. And uh, just, uh, and I know it's early, but uh, are you starting to see some solutions and uh, abilities to solve the problem that the American Bar Association is particularly adept at? Well, certainly providing pro bono assistance is a key, and the American Bar Association is really quite good at motivating people to get out of their offices and to help people that can really use their help. So just the facts, ma'am. I'd like to move on to ABA Fact Check. So since we spoke, we've had more than 18 different topics that have been posted on ABA Legal Fact Check website and sent out by media advisory to various media outlets. And what we found is that people are really interested in finding out what the real legal facts are. 
We focused on issues that have been relevant in the public discourse, so that we've done one, for example, on the scope of executive pardons. We've done another on affirmative action. We've done them on whether or not citizenship can be revoked for a naturalized citizen. Whatever issue is in the public media, we try and focus on and get constitutional scholars and other legal experts to focus on what are the real legal facts, and we post them. And to date, we've had more than 30,000 hits. So there are obviously wow. a lot of people out there who are interested in finding out what the real legal facts are. So is that a program that uh, you're predicting is going to grow as time goes on here? Uh, you're going to put more energy effort into that to get the word out? It's been very positively received. So I would hope that this is one that we will keep and stick with. Diversity and inclusion. And I know a big, from our last conversation, a big part of this was obviously women leaving the profession, but, you know, in terms and obviously taking the mantle from immediate past president, Paulette Brown, diversity and inclusion was a big issue for her and just wanted to check in there and, and see how that's going as well. Well, we've certainly maintained many of the programs that Paulette put into place and continue to move them forward. Certainly the numbers that we see with reference to women attorneys sadly, or even worse, with diverse attorneys. So we are hoping that a lot of the results of the study that we come up with as far as what legal employers can do to help women attorneys will also have relevance to the diverse attorney community as well. Okay. And Commission on the Future of Legal Education. So this is one that keeps coming back into our backyard. We have, uh, of course, the show with the ABA Law Student Division. And so a lot of these issues are, are commonly discussed uh, amongst them. So uh, last time we checked in, uh, you were going to be looking at debt, job market prospects, and then the low bar passage rates for ABA accredited schools. So have been reading that. There seems to be a, a pretty sharp decline in the uh, passage rates, uh, especially in states like California, which I think they're either pass it or they're experimenting with changing the format of the bar exam. Well, over the recent past, there's been a 10% decline in bar passage rates. And so this commission, among other things, is focusing on why that is and what we can do to alter that. What we know is that there's a complete lack of alignment between what we're training law students to do in law school and what we're testing them on. For example, most people are being tested purely on substance and very little on skills. And so we recognize that there are definitely some changes that we could make in the way the test is being formatted and how it is given. So one of the possibilities that a lot of people are interested in having us explore is for us to follow more akin to the medical school or accounting model. So for example, why is it that we test law students three years after they've taken their basic torts class on torts. In the medical school model and the accounting model, in both instances, they're being tested immediately after they finish their coursework in a particular area. In fact, in medical school, typically you take your basic exam after the first year of medical school, and if you don't pass it, you don't move forward. We ask people to invest three years of law school tuition without knowing whether or not they're really going to be able to pass the bar. And if you consider the possibility of giving the bar either in separate components, so if you fail one, you just have to retake that singular test rather than have to take the entire test all over, or perhaps give the basic core test after the first year, and if you don't pass that, there's no reason to take on another $100,000 worth of debt because maybe you shouldn't be going to law school. 
there are all kinds of things being discussed that seem to make a whole lot more sense than this pass or fail after three years singular test. And one of the interesting statistics that we've discovered is that out of that universe of people who don't pass the bar, 90% of them end up passing the second or third time they've taken the test. So the question is, does anybody think those people are going to be better lawyers because they've spent an extra year studying for a singular test? Most people would say probably not. So all we've done is make them go further in debt and prevent them from practicing as a lawyer for another year. But no one really has much confidence in the fact that just studying for that test for an extra six months is making them a better lawyer. So these are the types of questions the commission is looking at, including the lack of validity in what these cut scores are. So you may be aware that there is a huge range in the cut scores required based on the state in which you take the exam. So you go from a high of 145 to a low in the low 130s. And what we've learned is that there's no test out there that's validated or tried to correlate that cut score with whether or not you're going to be a better lawyer. So it seems like it might be somewhat arbitrary that you can take the same test in two states across the border from one another, and in one state you're going to be qualified to be a lawyer, and in the other one you're not, and yet there's really no rational validity to why one cut score is any more appropriate than the other. Yeah, there's definitely a lot uh, that goes into it, you know, and I think some of the the recent issues, you know, kind of portability of your scores. And I know since I took the bar, there's been more emphasis on kind of having sort of a regional score that'll qualify you for uh, practice in multiple states, especially if you're, you know, kind of in your middle states with a lower population, it might behoove you to kind of have a territory, especially if you're working like an oil and gas, you might want to cut across Colorado, you might want to get into Utah, might want to get into Montana. And so they've kind of, states have kind of, they've gotten together, teamed up and sort of made this more accessible to some of the, the, the bar passers. And um, that all kind of dovetails into a good job market. Now, I know that the, the job market has much improved since the, the extreme doldrums of the recession. We're definitely looking better, but uh, you know, I, I don't think it's quite what it was pre-recession. I know there's been a lot of change, and we've certainly been on the uh, kind of got a front row seat covering that, watching the profession adjust to kind of the new normal. And so I just wanted to, uh, you know, uh, pick your brain about uh, the job market. Where do you see, how could the ABA get in there and kind of help, uh, help encourage people? Well, what we know is that while the legal market is shrinking for big law jobs, there remains a tremendous justice gap with close to 80% of the people in our country not able to afford a lawyer. So clearly there are opportunities for young lawyers. One of the barriers for young lawyers to be able to provide low-priced legal services is typically the amount of debt they take on. If you're coming out of law school with $100,000 in debt, it's much tougher for you to hang out a shingle and say, I'm going to provide low-cost services. So it once again reflects the lack of alignment between where the needs are and where the capacity is. And one of the things this commission is going to be looking at is how can legal education be modified to try and assist with narrowing that gap. Well, I'm certainly reminded on a monthly basis the value of my legal education as I write that check. But, uh, you know, I, I tell you, I think that the debt monster out there, you know, right now, I think last study I read, $1.3 trillion wrapped up in student debt for college and, and graduates. 
That is a big number. That's the kind of number that could wreck an economy, especially with some of the default rates and near defaults that are reported out there. And I know there's a lot of programs to kind of help students pay that off. You know, you've got income-based repayment programs. Uh, Some people can go work and do the uh, public service loan forgiveness. But there seems to be, and I know the the American Bar Association uh, plays a leadership role with some of these ABA credit schools, and I I don't want to put you on the spot, but, you know, the, the tuition rates, despite recession, continue to climb despite the fact that, you know, job opportunities were in decline as well, tuition rates went up, you're borrowing more and more, and eventually you're going to get to the end of the road where the return on investment is so low relative to the amount of cost, people are going to leave the profession, not just in small amounts and large amounts. So I just wanted to open that. I know it's a big loaded question, but uh, I know that's one that uh, you can handle. Well, there's certainly things that we can look to as far as alternative ways of reducing debt. One of the suggestions that's been made and remains to be seen whether or not it's a viable alternative is to create a mandatory internship requirement that potentially would replace the need for a third year of substantive coursework. Interesting. If you went for two years of law school for substantive coursework and then you perhaps you were required to do a third and fourth year where you would be out there as an intern perhaps in a legal services environment where you're also helping with the justice gap, you would be, number one, reducing your debt load, number two, learning how to actually solve client problems, and number three, also helping to take care of some of the many people in this country that can't afford a lawyer. So there are possibilities out there for sort of changing the paradigm. Most people feel pretty comfortable that if you were to compare somebody who comes out of three years of pure law school coursework with someone who's done two years of coursework and a year of hands-on client problem solving, most people think the latter model would provide you a better practice-ready lawyer. I think I would agree with that just based on some of my friends uh, across. We went to different schools and kind of just reporting back who got jobs earlier. It was definitely the people that had more practical experience upon exit. So I think that would be a very interesting and I think a very workable change. I think that would be a good thing. So that's one of the things we're looking into. My second to last question, but my last substantive question, I know we've covered a pretty wide waterfront here, but uh, in terms of what we didn't discuss today, what's left? What are the main issues left for your tenure? Well, one of the focuses of my energy thus far has been in the area of wellness. We all recognize that some of the recent studies reflect that there are some real issues within the legal profession with significantly higher rates of depression, anxiety, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, and many other professions, and that's not something we can afford to ignore anymore. So we've got a working group on attorney wellness, and in April, we'll be having a one-day conference in D.C. where we'll be talking very specifically about what law firms can do to help lawyers. Because, of course, all of us want to help other lawyers who are in need. The current environment is such that even if you suspect one of your partners or one of your associates potentially has an anxiety issue or a substance abuse issue, it's very hard to intervene because you think it's going to be potentially career-ending for that person. So we've put together a group of people, including some representatives of legal malpractice insurers, who obviously have a lot to say on the subject, to try and help us come up with some basic policies that might help guide law firms who really do want to enhance the wellness of their attorneys, but aren't quite sure how to do it. 
Okay, well, we'll leave it at that. I know you've got a busy week ahead of you, but uh, just real quick, we're going to try to get these episodes out as quick as possible. But I just wanted, you know, if there's a listener out there, here's this, wasn't here at ABA mid-year, as thinking, hey, you know what, I better get to annual. Uh, I want to talk with President uh, Hillary Bass about some of these programs, want to get involved. How can they reach you? They can reach me at ABA President. It's my email address at aba.org. Excellent. Well, we've reached the end of the road for this episode today. I want to thank President Hillary Bass, the American Bar Association, for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Uh